Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon. Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention is back. SoonerCon 31 is scheduled for June 30th through July 2nd, 2023 in Norman, Oklahoma. It promises a weekend full of tabletop gaming, cosplay, and appreciation for literary sci-fi as well as TV and comics. Visit SoonerCon.com for more information. The Hellmouth Convention. The Hellmouth Convention is designed by fans for fans, with the aim of harnessing the power of fandom to raise money for charities. The Hellmouth Convention celebrates all fandoms, but particularly things like Buffy, Firefly, and Dr. Horrible. Like the Hellmouth itself, things gravitate toward it that you may not find anywhere else. The next event is scheduled for June 9th through 11th, 2023, in Los Angeles, California. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Boss. Again, I'm going to be your host. Today I'm talking with John Bukowski about the nuts and bolts of planning your story, writing the book, and getting it out there. And if you're a fan of my episode with, say, Mer Lafferty, where we talk about the very same subject, you're going to enjoy this one a whole lot. Let's get started. On tap today, we have John Bukowski. How are you doing this fine day? I'm doing very well, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Glad to have it. I heard about your book. I'm really interested in the concept and how you came about it. Okay. And generally, I think a lot of people listening might be too, because it's got a lot of genre elements, but a lot of elements that have a broader appeal too. Um, well, I'll give you the, the, uh, the two-sentence uh, nutshell description. It's a, it's a story of a cure for Alzheimer's being perverted into a suicide drug for assassination. Now high-level politicians are dying and only a drunken genius can save them. That's the log line, if you will. Um, it's, a, it's a thriller, a uh, techno thriller, kind of in the vein of Michael Crichton or Robin Cook. Uh, also a political thriller. I think Jean Lecaire or, or one of those guys. Um, how I came up with the idea. Um, I don't know if you have anyone in your family or anyone you knew who had Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. Unfortunately, I do know people in both categories. And that was one of the things I wanted to ask is if this came from a personal place for you. Yeah, it did. I, my, my own parents, uh, my father lived to be 81, my mother 92, sharp as a tack right up until the end. So it wasn't them, but my father-in-law, who I, I had quite a close relationship with, I passed away a few years ago. Uh, when he went to uh, assisted living, I visited him every week, and he had a form of dementia called vascular dementia, not as bad as Alzheimer's, but still, I would watch over time that he, man, was an engineer, a brilliant engineer, worked for Ford for many years, was in the design team for engines for the Ford versus Ferrari time in the 60s, and I watched him get to the point where he couldn't tell time anymore. I would come over and he'd say, what time is it? I'd say, I'd look at the clock on his wall. I'd say two and he'd go AM or PM. And I knew they were searching for cures for Alzheimer's and for other types of dementia. And that's when I had the what if moment. What if's a big thing for writers. Uh, a lot of ideas get generated by what if. Uh, for example, what if a giant shark terrorized the resort community? You've got uh, Jaws. 
what if a, a, a family whose son was a psychic got trapped in a haunted uh, hotel for the winter? You've got The Shining. My what if was, what if there was a cure for Alzheimer's? One very promising treatment, but it had a side effect. What if when it blocked the gene for Alzheimer's disease, it also blocked an adjacent gene for self-preservation? And what if, I mean, as you regained from the drug, you regained your self-identity, you'd also gain a self-loathing. And what if you gave it to a person who didn't have Alzheimer's disease? Well, then you'd have the perfect assassin's weapon, an assassin's dream, as I say in the book, because the target kills themselves. And that was basically the genesis for Project Suicide. Okay, and there's a lot to unpack there, very honestly. <laughs> there certainly is. But I, I think you succeeded in making a concept that draws people in right away. Right. I will confess I haven't had a chance to read the book because, you know, you and I just met not too long ago. And yeah. I, I do enjoy reading the stuff that people come on to talk about. I haven't had a chance this time around. Sure. But I'm thinking, wow, knowing that this is something that a lot of people have had to deal with, the subject matter, it, it hits a lot of people really close to home to see it turned around. It, it, have you had people talking about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're right, especially through, uh, the, through the time of COVID. Uh, people have learned, number one, to uh, be concerned about side effects associated with treatments and or vaccines that they might be taking. Uh, people have always had a curiosity and fascination and fear of things like suicide. Mm -hmm. And then you have the, uh, the old idea of Alzheimer's disease, which, I mean, that's very topical right now. Been some Bruce Willis was just diagnosed with a form of dementia not that long ago. Uh, a lot of people in the news uh, have, have had that Charlton Heston uh, back in the day. So yeah, I think it touches on several very topical points. And those all kind of meld together in, uh, in, in the story. There's nothing really scarier than a story about something that could actually happen to you. And a lot of people get fascinated by that alone. Yeah. And it's uh, now, now bear in mind, it is fiction. You know, a certain mm -hmm. amount of it is science fiction. But I, I'm not aware of any suicide drugs at the moment. Um, but it is an interesting idea. And especially, like I said, this whole idea of side effects, adverse events from treatments that are supposed to help you, I think is, is something that most people are concerned with. Sure. But I, I, what's, I'm, I'm getting philosophical here. This is not sure. a scientific question. This sure. is a philosophical question. Sure. What's the difference between a side effect and an intended effect other than aim? Well, it's every drug, you know, I have a background in, in, in medicine and, uh, and, and health. We'll get into that in a little bit, but um, every drug has some, what they call adverse events associated with it. That's what they call it in pharmaceuticals. They don't say side effect, they say an adverse event. Because it's almost impossible to target something solely on the disease you're interested in. There's always some other thing. And oftentimes, most of the time, people would get either no side effect 
or they'll get something mild like uh, associated with headaches or maybe uh, you take Motrin. I, I know if I take Motrin, I get upset stomach. You know, that's not the intended effect of the drug. It's the intended effect is to take down inflammation and pain, but it irritates the stomach a little bit. And that's true, I think, with almost every drug, uh, even every vaccine, at the very least, you're gonna get a sore shoulder, you know, maybe a little fever as the, as the antigen from the vaccine, you know, circulates in your body. But so, so yeah, there's, there's a certain amount that to every drug, usually it's not a big deal. I mean, some are worse than others. Uh, uh, chemotherapy for cancer, that's got some serious, because it's a heavy duty, toxic material you're dealing with most often. Well, so yeah, I, there's, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, where I got that from, and, and I'm not trying to back into a quarter, I'm just letting you know my thought process here is, you know, we see these ads on TV of listing all the drugs, adverse effects. Right. And, and one of the big ones that often I see it on when I'm watching Paramount Plus, because I'm addicted to that and they have a million commercials, <laughs> is they'll say, well, this continue use if you have suicidal tendencies. And I'm like, well, if what would take some disreputable person from taking this adverse effect and saying, crank that up to 100? Well, well, that's that's kind of the point of the uh, of the book. Mm-hmm. And, and bear in mind, a lot of those adverse effects, suicidal thoughts, they're reported, but often they're for, they're for some type of drugs like antidepressants, in which people who take the drug have some suicidal thoughts anyway. So it's very hard to tell if the drug's doing it or if. So the, the ad is basically a disclaimer just in case, you know, it's covering somebody's butt uh, in, 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 the, in the drug manufacturing or, or uh, pharmaceutical industry. But yeah, that's uh, that's the point of it. Is obviously the drug uh, in the uh, in the story is intended to treat Alzheimer's, and it's very effective. They have very good uh, results with it initially. But as the person gains cognition, gains self awareness, the thoughts of suicide come in, and that's where they say, you know, God, that's a big stumbling block. And somebody says, well, why can't we give it to people who don't have Alzheimer's disease? And then we get, instead of getting a curative, we get an assassination drug. And like I said, it's it's the perfect one because you do yourself. They can't prove anybody, uh, anybody damaged you. Mm-hmm. So going from the moment you had that aha point right. to your final draft, how much time are we talking here? Six months, six years? Uh, until I had the final first draft. Okay. And that's what people, you know, they think of books done. Where's a publisher? Uh, that first draft probably took me about eight months. Okay. And since that time is it had gone through about another five revisions. So that I probably completed the first draft about three years ago and it got published. Uh, uh, we sent it to the publisher in, November, December timeframe. So you're talking about from the concept to publication, probably about three and a half, four years. Now that's pretty good. Um, And I say that because a lot of people seem to get stuck on the first draft. And I guess that's why they fall in love with it and never want to change it because it took so far to get there. (laughs) Right. You kept getting words on the page and you cranked it out. And I think that's commendable because that really is the first step. Right. And that's it. There's a, there's a lot of people writing out there 
And as you say, a lot of people have unfinished manuscripts uh, or they spend forever polishing the first draft. You know, they're on their 32nd, you know, revision, um, afraid to send it out, that kind of thing. My philosophy is, you know, uh, write every day, get the words on the page, uh, complete a draft, set it aside, start on something else. And when you've got a break in that something else, come back and revise that draft. And of course, as you get toward the end, as you've, as you've done it, you know, you're, you're liable to jump right back in after a week or two because you want to get it ready for the publisher. But, uh, but yeah, there's a lot of people with unfinished manuscripts, uh, a whole group of people who want to write, but can't seem to get past that beginning. And that beginning is the easiest part. Mm -hmm. Beginnings and endings are relatively easy. And I say that advisedly because it's relative. It's not an easy thing to, to come up with a concept and write anything. It's the middle that get to a lot of people because that's where all this development's taking place. You don't have the excitement of the new idea and you don't have the dash to the end. Uh, and that's where people like Stephen King really shine, how they can interweave plot lines and characters and develop the characters. You know, take the book Shining as an example, where, I mean, there is so much character development, character involvement over the five or 600 pages, you know, and that's, that's the hardest thing to do. And you have to constantly ask yourself, does the audience need to know this right now? Right. Because the, right. the, there's there's this tendency to want to just get all the facts out there like your right. Joe Friday, and that's not good storytelling. No. As a matter of fact, when I first started out, because my background, as I said, is in science, I have a doctor of veterinary medicine degree, a PhD in epidemiology, uh, public health degree. And uh, that's what you do is you get the facts out there and get to the point. And when I first started writing, I had to slow down and say, wait a minute, getting right to the point, you know, having plot A, B, C connect over a, a couple thousand or 10,000, 20,000 words is, is not a good story. It doesn't, uh, it, there's not all that fleshing out that you need with characters and suspense buildup and maybe a couple of blind alleys and a couple of red herrings. And uh, so you're right. Yeah, it's uh, it's that muddy middle, they call it. Yeah. And what made you decide you wanted to make the jump from a strong science background into fiction? Well, that's that's uh, funny because I started off like when I went to undergrad and even in high school, I went to a uh, college prep high school in Detroit. And I, I was straight biological sciences all the way. And I went right into veterinary medicine, practiced for several years, and wanted to do a little bit more sciencey stuff. So I uh, got my degrees in public health. And as I was, but all through this, even in undergrad, there was this, I don't know if you want to say muse talking to me. I liked to write even then. If I had a, a course that was an elective, it was likely to be an English course. Uh, English literature, great American writers, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, um, something like that. And as I got into my public health work in industry and, uh, and uh, government, I became kind of the go-to guy. If you want something written that is interesting, that people will, will follow, and maybe taking 
technical material and making it understandable, go to John Bukowski. And so I started doing more and more of that. I was doing less and less research, more and more writing. And so when I got fed up with the corporate grind and wanted to go out on my own, I went into medical writing. So I did that for about 10 years. And uh, even in that sphere, though, you write journal articles for companies and things like that. But even in that sphere, I started looking for more creative outlets, you know, advertorials, advertising copy, uh, consumer handbooks, taking technical material on pets or, or people, uh, health, and turning it into uh, understandable material for the public. Uh, I did radio scripts for uh, Florida Veterinary <clears throat> School down in uh, uh, Florida State University. And they called them animal airwaves. And they were like one or two minutes long. So they're like writing mini stories, beginning, middle, and end in like two minutes. I did it, about 150 of those. So I started branching out into more and more creative things. And around 2008, 2009, the bottom dropped out of medical writing because of the Great Recession. So I had time. My wife was working and I had time. And I said, you know what? I've always wanted to write a novel. So I wrote my first novel during that time period. Wasn't very good. It's still sitting in a drawer, but that got me started and uh, went on from there. And I said, you know what? This is a lot more fun. <laughs> and uh, so as I was, I was easing down my technical career, I went into a fictional career. I've also published like eight short stories. So I, I write other things too, but. I'm getting a lot from that. Two things in particular. One, you were not afraid to just pursue something for the fun of it, despite having a, a lot of qualifications, yeah. technical qualifications. You, you had a resume, right. but you said, this is fun and that's important to me. Yeah. And the other thing I'm getting for that is that when you pursued this, you already had a strong understanding of the practice of it, the, the business end of it, of sitting down, putting in the work, going through the, the repetition of it. You didn't say, I'm just going to write when when the mood fits me and my first draft is going to be perfect. You knew practice makes perfect. You got to fill yeah. those seats. A a absolutely. Writing is, is you've got to treat it like both a job and a hobby. The hobby part is you love to do it. I mean, and most writers will tell you this, they're kind of driven to do it. If they don't write or if they're not working on something, revising it or whatever, doesn't feel right. Hemingway used to say, is one of my idols, Ernest Hemingway. He used to say, you know, I'm feeling good. I had a 4,000 word week. You know, if he got 4,000 words in, he felt he was doing his job. And that's kind of it. You got to get the discipline of doing it all the time. And that's the same thing for uh, uh, writing a journal article. I've written many journal articles, either for other people or, or my own research. Or, uh, you know, if you're a plumber going to work, you got to you got to be consistent. You can't do it when you feel like it. Mm -hmm. So. So when it came to your particular story, is there a an inspiration you have from another? I don't want to say another book or another movie, but a, a type of story that you're trying to emulate. You said Michael Crichton. I'm right. a huge Crichton fan. So that right. definitely gets my interest right away. Do you yeah, feel I, like Michael Crichton, Robin Cook, those guys, I always got the impression when you watch their movies or read their books, that 
not only are you getting entertained, you're getting a little education. Yeah, there's a lot of BS in his genetics for Jurassic Park. There's a lot of fact there too. And if you make the fact interesting and understandable, then people buy into the BS. They may not even know it's BS. Uh, I've often said that a good writer, good novelist, fiction writer, is like a good con man. You're telling a lie. You're telling a long lie. And the more truth you get into it, the better you sell it, the more people are likely to believe it. And that's the point. Get people to dispense, uh, dispense with their in disbelief and buy into the concept. And if you can get people to do that, then they're flipping pages and they're reading, waiting for that next thing to come along, you know, that next uh, uh, chapter. And at the end, they get that feeling of elation and being let down. Any good book that I've ever read, you get both that feeling of wow, and then it's over. Yeah. And that's what you strive for. So what yeah, Michael you, Crichton, I'd say it would be the biggest influence there. What was your take on Eaters of the Dead? Excuse me? Eaters of the Dead. Eaters of the Dead. Mm -hmm. You'll have to, uh, Was and that might be, a, is that a Crichton book? It is. I, it's it, one, it may be one I haven't read. Okay. Is it, is, it, is it an old one? Uh, I'm trying to think. I, it was made into a movie. I think he was still alive when it was made, but they, it was right around those late 90s, early 2000s. Um, but essentially, it's his way of retelling Beowulf. Okay. And he said at the beginning that, and I am of mixed minds about this, he's like, well, I wanted to retell it with a better sense of drama. Which makes sense in one sense because he succeeded. Right. You read it and it's like, wow, this it he fills in a lot of BS. There's a lot of context that you get right. that that helps. And at the same time, it's like Beowulf is like one of the oldest stories in civilization. Yeah. It was yeah, it's gonna be hard to top that, buddy. Right. <laughs> That's like redoing Shakespeare, you know. Yeah, it is. It's like you, you don't want to say you can do it better, even if you can. Right. right. <laughs> even if you succeed, you still kind of look like a jerk. Yeah. Uh, yeah, his uh, that that's one I I I hadn't read. Uh, I certainly pray Congo, uh, um, Jurassic Park, uh, Airframe. I loved mm -hmm. Airframe. Uh, I, I I have to go and read that one. The, I would recommend uh, it. Okay, I liked it more than Congo. Um, trying to think, uh, Jurassic Park and Lost World together, I liked quite a bit. Andromeda Strain. Andromeda Strain, yeah. Sphere didn't do much for me. Yeah, I felt the same way about Sphere when I read it. I was, you know, blown away by Andromeda Strain, both the book and the movie. Mm -hmm. But Sphere, yeah, it was not, uh, is entertaining. You know, that's, and not everybody hits a home run every time. Right. You know, you've got to, uh, you've got to, you've got to move on. I always uh, heard a uh, writer at a writer's conference say once, because people, you know, are working on their, their, their novel. And he goes, you may have worked five or six years to get this novel where you want it. But if someone picks, picks it up, they're going to want to see the next one in a year. Mm -hmm. So get a move on. <laughs> you know, you don't have six years every, for every one. And so, yeah, they, they, they get to a point where they, it's good enough and people like it or they don't. 
the one thing you might have in your pocket is that we don't all become Stephen King or Michael Crichton. We don't no, all true. have people begging us for manuscripts. No. By the time you get that interest, you may have three or four unsold books sitting on your shelf that you can throw at that person. Exactly. That's, uh, you know, Trump novels or whatever you want to call them. Uh, I'm certainly, I'm working on one now that I wrote. I actually finished the first draft before Project Suicide. And this is the next one I'm going to get to my publisher. So I'm working on that now, just putting it through a final revision before I get it edited. And uh, uh, I usually have my wife do a quick edit because she's a professional editor. And then get it over to uh, Doug Showalter, the editor for Pathfinder Press. But, uh, but yeah, I, I've got a few that are in various stages of completion, all, dra all completed drafts. And I've just started kind of getting the ideas together for a sequel to this book, sequel to Project Suicide, because several of my readers have said, wow, I want to see, I want to see what happens with, with Deacon and Amy. So, so you, you didn't start off by immediately saying you wanted a three book trilogy and a movie deal. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> and like I said, you, if you're not Michael Crichton or Stephen King, you can't do that anyway. I have a small press that I'm working with and, uh, you know, the majors, the, I think it's down to three major New York presses now out of the dozen it used to be years ago. I think there's only about three and all the agents are pitching to these three. So yeah, that's a, it's a long shot to say you're going to get a major press uh, right out of the bat mm -hmm. and to get a book and a movie deal and all that stuff. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people who have those kinds of ambitions and I respect that because if you can't set your sights high, why you're bothering? Right. So we all have that ambition. Yeah. Sure. But there's a certain practicality in your method here, which I'm definitely seeing the point to. Uh, and, and I like the small presses a lot. In fact, I, I actually sat down a couple of weeks ago and realized that the best reads I've had in the past five years were from either self-published authors or small press. Right. And, uh, and that's the thing more and more. One of the reasons I think they've shrunk from all these major presses down to three and there's a lot more small presses now, is just what you're saying. The industry's changing. It's, uh, uh, and people realize that even if you got a big press, again, unless you're Stephen King or, or Michael Crichton or uh, uh, Patterson, you're gonna do the marketing yourself anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, you, uh, so that's kind of what I'm doing now, you know, you're, you're you're in the in the marketing phase, get as many people to read it and hopefully enjoy it and write a review about it. Uh, most people don't realize how important that is to authors, but get a good Amazon review. Um, both numbers of reviews and quality of reviews, very important. <clears throat> and I, I think that that's one of the reasons that people who follow authors who have tried to create with their stories have realized the power of the community the internet community and the types of fans they're right. looking for making that connection, not being just another voice in the crowd. That's, that's crucial these days. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of people uh, do Kindle books and they make a lot of, you know, mistakes because that's the easiest thing to do. You can self-publish a Kindle book, for example, very, very quickly and easily make a lot of mistakes is number one. They don't revise it enough and or get it edited enough before they put it out there. So some people might read it, but then they're probably not going to read your next thing because, you know, there was a lot of mistakes and it wasn't very good. And the next thing they do is just to put it out there and that's it, you know, and 
A few people will download it, you know, and you'll get a few readers, but that's about all. So uh, marketing. Marketing. And what's the John Burkowski 10-second marketing lesson out there? What's the, the, the philosophy you have to have behind how to do it right versus how to stink at it? Well, I would say a lot of people, and I, I'm going to have to uh, credit a guy named Tim Grawl for this. He's a, uh, a book promoter, book marketer uh, out there that does seminars and things like that. And something he said really struck with me. He goes, you know, there's several ways you can do this. If, uh, you know, if you're somebody like a Stephen King or know a Stephen King, you can do a big celebrity, you know, release that is all over like a month period where you get a lot of chatter about the book and stuff like that. Or you can be in it for the long haul. You know, you're, he said, you know, he says, and I agree with this, your book promotion, your book launch is anytime you're promoting the book. So, you know, it may be a year, you may be promoting the book for a year, a year and a half, three, he, he had one book, he was still promoting, it was three years old, you know, and it's a matter of if nobody's, if somebody hasn't read it yet, then it's new to them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in, I'm in the long haul marketing, you know, just keep doing it. If I'm not writing or revising, I'm marketing. And it's tough to find that extra time in there because writing yeah. and revising is going to really chew up your day if you do it right. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I like this. I like this a lot that you're, you're it's always new to you. You're always marketing. You're always relaunching the book. I got to admit, I've never, ever thought of it that way. Yeah. Because people think of it as a book launch mm -hmm. and a lot of people do that. They go, I tried to get as many as I sold over the first month and then they're done. And and again, unless you're somebody like Stephen King, you're not going to get, you know, 500,000 or 100,000 or necessarily even 1,000 or, or 200 over the first month. You know, it's a long, it's a long process. Amazon, especially with their digital books and especially for the independents, will, there's apparently an effect that if you buy your book on a certain day and you coordinate your fans to buy it on a certain day, it bumps you up in the stats and gives you right. more visibility. And that's definitely a thing i can totally see why people would do that but it just seems like that that's the effect of that is temporary at best i mean yeah. it works for a day but how much can you get out of that right that's and and really what you're doing is you're building a relationship with readers building a relationship with an audience through podcasts i'm doing a book club in september in uh knoxville uh you know and uh because I'm, I'm, I'm living right now, I'm in Ohio, but I'm living in uh, Eastern Tennessee. And uh, you build a relationship and people start to recognize your presence. And as they read your stuff, they go, okay, I like this. What's coming out next? I've got my email list I'm building and uh, give people little freebies now and then a short story here and there. And, uh, you know, they get to know me, I get to know them. And uh, like Stephen King says, you know, you, you have a relationship with your constant reader. You know, I'm glad you brought up email because I spent all this morning talking about how it's not really the crucial part of the Internet that people like to think it is, or at least there's this perception right. that it's not that people don't read email like they used to. They don't write it. Has that been your experience? Well, I mean, for, for book promotion, email lists are good. They help. Uh 
absolutely. Uh, you know, things like ConvertKit you can get that are, that are free, at least up for your first thousand. And uh, send out kind of broadcast emails, updates on what you're doing every, every couple of weeks. Uh, like I said, throw in a free uh, short story now and then. Updates on what's coming next, the next book. Uh, so that's another way of getting that relationship developed where people feel like they kind of know you and they're a part of your writing process. You know, during this, I've had a lot of friends, people I just met, or many longtime friends. They're like, this is great. I'm, what do you got coming up next? Did you think about this for an idea? So it's, it's given them a little outlet too. Maybe they're not a writer. That's but, what I was hoping to hear. It's because yeah, yeah. I, I personally can't believe what I what I was hearing earlier that people are saying, well, people just don't really care about email anymore. It's like, but it's it's the best way to give a long form thought and some feedback is to yeah. write an actual letter instead of a tweet, which I love Twitter, don't get me wrong, right. but you can't fit a whole thought into that tiny little space when you're talking about something as big as a book. Right. And and it's the art of writing a letter. You know, which a lot of people have lost. I grew up in a time when uh, we were trained in that, you know, how to write, how to write a letter, grammar, punctuation, uh, sentence diagramming, things like that. So there's there's a way to write letters, too, that will engage people, you know, and if you if, if you don't want to receive it anymore, you can opt out. But certainly uh, I found that people enjoy them. I've had people telling me, oh, I, I'm really interested in hearing. I read your short story that you you, you uh, put the link on. I like that, you know, that kind of thing. Excellent. Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. So I guess before we wrap up here, there's one more thing I really want to ask. Sure. And that is, it's a variation on what's coming next. But instead of asking what's coming next, I want to ask, what would you really like to see next? What What is your dream ambition for where you'd like to take your writing if this book takes off? Um, a couple of things. First, I'd like to just, like I said, develop that audience. You know, the, uh, uh, put out good material that people enjoy reading. Uh, that is a reward in and of itself, just to develop readerships and and sell books, not so much for the profit, although it's nice making money, but to get your, your stories out there, to get your ideas out there, to get your thoughts out there. And what I'd love to see, because I've been told by many different people, that your stuff reads like a movie. And I've got a movie in my head when I'm reading it. And that's really also a, another aspect of, of a good writer. You're, you're showing a movie and the movie that's in your head is the same movie that's in the reader's head with a few variations. They may see characters slightly different, whatever. So it's very visual. And so I think it would make great cinematic fare. And I'm hoping at some point, uh, you know, we put out a press release that went to entertainment uh, sites and stuff like that. Hoping at some point, some producer or something gets the same idea. Because I think it would be, uh, uh, again, it's nice to have the money, but more to get the recognition of the book out there so more people would read the book and, uh, and maybe subsequent ones. I could definitely see that being something that would be enjoyable. 
I could see this being a. I love the glut of sci-fi movies we have right now, but I think there's room in the world for something like what you're doing, which is right. sci-fi adjacent has some elements, but still is right. very grounded in a more real world type. Right. Of it's a, it's it's you know what they call techno thriller. Sure. And and uh, it's also a political thriller, like I said, but a techno thriller like Crichton. And uh, so you, like I said, you get entertained and educated. So that's the both worlds. Well, I'm going to put all that information on the show notes on my website, aaronbossig.com. If there's anything else you'd like me to throw up there, I'll make sure to do that. John, where um, can people find your information, your books, okay. your projects? Easiest way to get to Project Suicide is www.projectsuicidenovel.com all one word, Project Suicide Novel. That'll take them directly to the Amazon site. You can get paperback, Kindle, or uh, hardcover. Uh, that being said, you can also check out my website, www.thrillerjohnb.net. And I have some short fiction there. I put kind of a, a, a blog post every couple of weeks on there. And... Uh, uh, or just just drop me a line and I can get you on the email list at uh, John B at thrillerjohnb.net. Okay, I will make sure that gets in there. John, thanks so much for being here. I've been really enjoying this chat and I look forward to checking out this book. Great, Aaron. I appreciate it. Take care. I would like to thank John for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. If you're getting this episode right as it hits the internet, you really want to rush over to the Sci-Fi Coffee Company website, sci-fi-coffee.com, and check out their writing contest. It's only open for a few more days. The idea is that you choose a great backstory for one of their great flavors and submit that. You have the chance to win a fantastic cash prize, but also to see your work published on their site and associated with their great coffee. The chance to add a sci-fi flair to a fairly everyday object like coffee is the mark of a great artist, and I really think that this is a good chance to get your work out there in front of other fans. If you feel like ordering while you're there, you can use the coupon code HUNGRY to get 10% off. Don't forget you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.